some have asked uh, if we're doing something for Sean and Martha as a as a thank you, a little something. And so while I was praying during the first service, I, I just felt like, um, you know what we need to do? We need to send them to Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. I mean, you've seen Sean, right? You know how much he likes to eat. And, uh, and they've never been anywhere like that. Um, and, and so I just decided we're going to do that. So we'll be taking a special offering to cover his meal. Because, uh, let's see. If you, if you look in a Bible how much Jesus did centered around food, it is amazing. It's amazing. Um, and and I, I mean, I'm personally, it, I, I know what it's like when someone says, hey, let me, let me treat you. My friend John Addington, every, every year since they've been to this church, he takes me out. Um, I think he missed this year. This is my hint, John. Uh, and says, hey, I love you. I am for you. I love our church. Um, it just it just means the world, and you know there's something special when you sit down and eat with somebody. Um, and and I I heard that it's your 29th birthday today, John. So happy 29th. Uh, you don't you don't look at, you don't look a year you don't look a year older than 60. So you're doing great. Uh, in in the book of Acts, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, and Luke wrote the book of Acts. And I want you to understand kind of his. The, the, the flow of, of his writing and where he's going with this whole thing. In Acts chapter 1, he says, In my former book, Theophilus, he was writing this to a man named Theophilus, we believe. Uh, he said, In my former book, that's the book of Luke. In, in, in my former book, the book of Luke, I wrote about all that Jesus, what's the next word? Began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up into heaven. So the, the book of Luke was all that Jesus began to do. The book of Acts is about everything Jesus continues to do through the church. So, so the Gospels of the beginning, Acts is the continuation through the church. Jesus said himself in the book of John, very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. So when Jesus ascended to heaven, and then we see that in the book of Acts, this is his continual work. And when he says they will do even greater things, he doesn't mean greater in magnitude. He means greater in scope through the whole world. And so in, 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 in Acts 1.8, Jesus says, you will be, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be by witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the whole earth. So Acts 1 through 9, chapters 1 through 9, is the ministry, Jesus' continued ministry through the church, in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. In Acts 10, where we are today, is Jesus' continuing work through the church into the whole world. Okay, so, so that, that's, that, that's kind of the flow of this whole thing. When we left off in Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 9, verse 43, talks about Peter, the apostle Peter, Simon Peter, being at the home of Simon the Tanner. Now, by trade, a tanner works with what? Hides and dead animals, which was, which was against the religious law for the Jews. They weren't to associate with dead animals, nor even dead people. And so the fact that there was this Simon the Tanner that the apostle Peter is staying with is earth-shattering because it made Peter religiously unclean. What they believed 
the Jews believed that if they were right with God and came in contact with something that was unclean, it made them defiled or unclean as well. And they had to go through this whole ritual process of washing, of bathing, of cleansing, and waiting so many hours so they could be clean again. And so what Peter is doing at the end of chapter 9 is, is completely reshaping his entire worldview. He's staying with Simon the Tanner. We don't grasp how profound that is, that he would do that, but it is earth-shattering. And, and here's what I know, that God was preparing Peter's heart before he could work through Peter's life. And that's what God always does. He always starts a work in our hearts before he works through our life. And we got to get it here first. And most people get this confused. They think, I got to do, I got to do, I got to do. And God says, no, 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 you have to become first. I needed to work in you before I can work through you. Don't switch those things. I'm going to do and then God will make me. No, let God do his work in you. Like there's a work in here, a work of grace that he has to do first. And when he does that work of grace, then he can work through your hands. So in Acts chapter 10, verses 1, 2, and 3, it says this, At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and his family were devout and God-fearing and gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about 3 in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius? Uh, so Cornelius is in a place called Caesarea. And Caesarea is a coastal city, a little coastal harbor, and it is beautiful. It's gorgeous. Shem and I have been there. And actually, while we were there, there was a group from USC doing excavation work. Uh, and we got to talking to them about Scripture, about the Bible, and they actually gave me pieces of pottery from the first century that they weren't supposed to give me. So we'll need to delete that from the video if it goes out, because I'll get in trouble by the Department of Antiquities. But um, I have it at my house. I mean, I don't have it at my house anymore. Um, but it was, it's just beautiful, this, this Mediterranean uh, coastal city. And so that's Caesarea, and, uh, and, 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 and uh, uh, Cornelius is there. Now, Cornelius was called a what? A centurion. That tells us who he is. It tells us what he does. The Roman army was divided into legions, and there were 6,000, approximately 6,000 soldiers per legion. Each legion was broken up into regiments of about 600 men each, and each regiment was broken up into centuries, groups of 100. So this was the commander of a hundred Roman soldiers. That's why he's called the centurion. Okay, Now he was a centurion of the what regiment? Italian regiment. So apparently he is from Italy who has imported over into what is, what is Israel as a part of the Roman army. The significance about that, his regiment is an Italian regiment. He's a God-fearer, and so there is a buy-in from, quote, the rest of the world, the people who are not Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. This is spreading now to the rest of the world. Now, it's significant that the Bible says he is a God-fearer. What that means is that as an import into the Israel, being run by the Roman government in a Greek culture, 
He's exposed to the pantheon of gods that they all believed in. And he's realized that all these other things that people say are in control and have authority and spirituality, it's all bogus. There's truth to the Hebrew one God theology. There's truth to the doctrine of a one singular God. So he is a God-fearer, so much so that he prays and gives, but he's not a Jesus follower. That's an important distinction to make. There are a lot of people who are God-fearers and who are religious, but they're not necessarily Jesus followers. It matters not just what you believe about God. It matters what you do with Jesus. This is so important to God that God will orchestrate two lives to bring these two together, Peter and Cornelius, so that Cornelius will not just be a God-fearer, but a Jesus follower. He was sincere, he was religious, he was good, but he wasn't yet saved. It's interesting to me that this guy without Christ, without the Holy Spirit, practiced generosity, practiced serving, practiced good deeds, all without the Holy Spirit. And I wonder if times that some people who are religiously devout people without Christ are more devout than those who claim Christ. It's just interesting. And so this angel says, Cornelius, and Cornelius stared at him in fear and said, what is it, Lord? The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Cornelius' response was what? What is it? It Implied in that response is implied immediate obedience. He doesn't say, like there's no hesitation here. It's an implied immediate obedience. His is a response of a devout person. God, you have my yes on the front end. You go ahead and direct my yes. Whatever you're going to say next, you've already got a yes. And the Bible says that his gifts and his prayers have come up to God as a memorial offering. Do you know what a memorial offering is, biblically? A memorial offering is two things. It can be either of two or it can be both. It's either a memorial of the one giving and praying because they remember God. I remember your sovereignty. I remember your your gifts. I remember your mercy. I remember your grace. And I give and I pray because I remember who you are. The other way a memorial offering could be understood is that the one who is receiving the gifts and the prayers remembers the one who gave. So this is a way of the giver to remember God, and it's the way God uses to remember those who give and serve and pray. In the Bible, God remembers people. For instance, in the Old Testament, after the flood, the Bible says God remembered Noah. It's not like he forgot anybody. To rem- for God to remember someone means God turns their, his positive attention and activity towards the person. So when the Bible says God remembered them, it means he turns his positive attention and activity towards them. Don't you want God to remember you? I pray every day, God, remember me, remember Shelly, remember my marriage, remember my family, remember Kate, remember why, remember why. Turn your positive attention and activity towards us. It's interesting to me that the memorial offering, his Cornelius' giving and his prayers 
God saw that as a memorial offering. Not just that Cornelius was remembering God, but that called God's attention back to Cornelius. Let me tell you how this works. What's the longest chapter in the Bible? Psalm what? Psalm 119. What's it about? It's about the Bible. So based on the magnitude of what God has to say, God cares the most about his word because he has the most to say about it. What's the second longest chapter in the Bible? Okay, I'll tell you. Number seven. What's number seven about? People's giving. And so based on the magnitude of what God has to say in his word, he has the most to say and cares most about his word. That makes sense. If you apply that same principle to what God cares second most about, he has the most to say and, 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 and cares the most about, secondly, about generosity of people towards his kingdom. Study it for yourself. It seems to be, apparently, that God keeps track of our generosity for his kingdom and our prayers. He keeps ledgers. And they're seen by God as memorial offerings that he remembers those who do and turns his positive attention and activity towards them. Now, I told you when we started studying the book of Acts, it was going to be tough. It's tough for a lot of reasons, right? I'm just telling you what the Bible says here. And so we go on and we, we start seeing what's happening with Cornelius and with Peter. Now, send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. So the angel's talking to Cornelius, says, go to Joppa, get this guy named Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. About noon the following day, this is, this is kind of what's going on at the same time. The following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. Uh, he became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. I, I like, that's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Kill and eat. The, the thing that is, one of the things that's interesting to me here is when God calls Cornelius, he calls him by name. And when God calls Peter, he calls him by name. Don't miss the significance of that. Isaiah 43.1 says, I have called you by name and you are mine. God is a personal God. You are not some entity out there somewhere and God's some, some entity out there. So you are a personal God. Person, you are an individual. God is a personal God, and He will call you by name. Here's why that gives me encouragement because when everybody else forgets me, God doesn't. When everybody else forgets my name, God calls me by name. When I'm in everybody else's shadow, everybody else's forgotten corner, God calls me by name. He loves you so much that he knows your name and calls you by name. You matter to him. On this sheet, all kinds of food. 
That means kosher and, and unclean. I mean, reptiles, for goodness sake, kill and eat snakes. That's just nasty. It's all unclean stuff. I, I guarantee you there was a pig on there, and he's like, oh, Megan. And, and, and God gives him this vision, and what's Peter's response? Surely not, Lord. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. Please understand. You cannot say no and Lord in the same sentence. He's either Lord or he's not. And he either gets a yes or he doesn't if he's Lord. I wonder how many times we've done the same. Oh, no, yeah, no, I follow Jesus, absolutely. I mean, I'm not going to do that. Watch, Watch this. The voice spoke to Peter a second time. Don't call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. Why did it happen three times? Remember when he was in the courtyard at the arrest of Jesus? How many times did he deny him? Remember when Jesus reinstated him by the, sea, by, by the, the, the shore and the lake? How many times did Jesus reinstate him? He gets this vision. How many times did it take him to get it? That what it tells me is that Peter is slow to learn. He's just bullheaded, thick-headed. He's not real intelligent, it seems, at times. And he's just stubborn. And that gives me hope for me. I don't get it the first time. I don't get it the second time. I'd be lucky if I get it the third time. And God is very, very, very patient. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. In essence, he says, just give them a yes on the front end. All you have to know is I'm doing something. You just give me a yes, and I'll flesh it out as you go. Don't hesitate. Don't ask questions. Don't ask for explanation. Just say yes on the front end. This is so different than how we respond, isn't it? Like, God, I don't mind doing stuff for you as long as you tell me some details. I just need a fungenda for this. How is this going to go? What's the schedule? How are you going to make sure? And Jesus says, I don't work like that. You give me your yes on the front end, I'll direct it. So watch what happens. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? In essence, he hesitates. He wants an explanation. I'm so glad that God is patient with stubborn people. And Peter will go on, a, on about a 30-mile journey, maybe a, a day and a half, could be up to two days, to get to where God's calling him. In verse 27, while talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. So he goes on this two-day journey. He knocks on the door where Cornelius is, and he finds Cornelius talking with a whole bunch of people. Here's what I love. Cornelius, without even knowing Jesus, has already reached his huddle. He's already gathered those 8 to 12 people who he had influence with to be with him to figure this whole God thing out. He doesn't have a relationship with Jesus yet, but realize he's giving, he's generous, he's serving, he's praying, and he's including his huddle. A non-Jesus follower 
is being more, more biblical than most of us who call ourselves disciples these days, who have the Holy Spirit with us. It just amazes me. Watch what Peter's response is. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. Why does he have to say that? He's walking into Cornelius' house with Cornelius' family and friends. He says, yo, look, you're just aware of, of, of how good I am, right? Because I shouldn't even be here with you people. Look at what he says. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Whoa! Like, why do you gotta... You, you always notice how we try to make ourselves look better than what we are? I mean, it's just part of human nature, right? I don't care how sanctified you think you are. We always try to make ourselves look better than what we are. Why do you have to say that? Peter, this ain't about you. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. Really? Right? We tell our own story so we look good. This is what he does. I was thinking about this. How do I put this in words that we'll get? Here's what I came up with. Trusting God means, means I won't offer an objection or demand an explanation. I'm just going to go. I'm just going to do it. I don't need an, I'm not going to raise an objection to God about why I can't, why I won't, why, why I have it. And I'm not going to demand an explanation. God, I'm just going to give you a yes. You go ahead and direct it. Right? That's what it is to trust. And so then, look, I know what time it is, but I want to finish this. All right? You all right? Okay, so let me just, let me just, let me cut to what Peter tells them. Okay? It's a big, long section. I'm, I'm going to pick out a few verses. This is Peter's, this is what Peter says to Cornelius and the people there. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who what? Who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ who is the Lord of all. We are witnesses of everything he did in the uh, country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead." All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin through his name. Is it enough to believe in God and to pray and to give? No. It matters what you do with Jesus. These people believed in the God of the Jews. They were devout. They were religious. But it wasn't enough because they didn't have a relationship with Jesus. It all centers, hinges, and is built on what you do with the person of Jesus the Christ. And Peter makes that very, very, very plain. My, my sons, when they were growing up, oftentimes asked about their friends, who either were, were people of different faith backgrounds or not at all. And they would always ask about, about their eternity. And my response to a person was always, it depends on what they do with Jesus. See, it's Romans 10, 9 that says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's about what you do with Jesus. 
You can say all the time about what you, that you believe in God. That's fine. The Bible says even the demons believe in God and they're scared to death. It matters what you do with Jesus. That if you, if you confess with your mouth that he is Lord, he's the ruler, he's supreme, and he will be the judge of the living and the dead. You've got to answer to him. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that he is a living Savior. In that is salvation. Everything rests on the person of Jesus. It's the name of Jesus before whom every knee will bow. It's the name of Jesus before every tongue will confess that he is Lord. It's the name of Jesus by which you must be saved. And every tongue will confess and every knee will bow either by choice on earth or by judgment in eternity. Do it now. It matters in whom you have believed. The person of Jesus And if you go on and read that, you'll see that, that they believed and immediately they were baptized. That's how it works in the Bible. Baptism follows immediately. We did a huge baptism last week, and it was awesome. We'll do another one next week if any of you choose to believe today. Immediately. But, but I want you to notice real quick, all God orchestrated to bring Peter to Cornelius to get Cornelius into the kingdom. God was working on both ends. God worked in Peter's life to get him to travel 30 miles, almost two days' journey, to get him to Cornelius. God was working in Cornelius' life at the same time, giving both of them visions at different times to draw them to him and to each other. All these plans had to be made for this journey, for all the provisions. All the questions had to be answered and, 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 and had to go without being answered. But God was working in both scenarios to bring them together. It's amazing to me what God did. An angel appeared to Cornelius, and the angel didn't even tell Cornelius about Jesus. Why? Doesn't it seem like that's the easy solution? Angel shows up. Angels are like, hey, I live with them in heaven. Let me tell you about them. The angel doesn't. Let me tell you why. One reason is because angels don't get that privilege. It's, consider this. God has entrusted the privilege of telling other people about him to us people. Angels don't even get to do it. There's only one angel in all of Scripture at any time in God's divine economy and eons that any angel will proclaim the gospel, and that's in the end times, right before the whole thing ends. One time. God has given that privilege to us who already know him, that we get to be the bridge for people who don't know him, that he's also working on. It's amazing. You have that honor. Why would, you, why would we not want that? Well, like in all of creation, he said, you guys get to be my people that reveal me to other people. Like that's an honor. <laughs> He's entrusted that to nothing else. Why would we not celebrate and embrace them? Like, yeah. The other thing, like, God was working to get these two together. Did you know that in, in, right down the road from Cornelius was a guy named Philip? Philip was one of the seven that was chosen when Stephen was, earlier in Acts. Stephen, the first martyr, they also chose Philip. Look what the Bible says about Philip. This is way in Acts 21. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea, and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. 
Here's this guy that was chosen as one of the seven, living in the same little town as Cornelius, right down the road. He was already there. And God had done so much in, in, in Philip's life that he had a nickname. His nickname was the what? The there was an evangelist right down the road from Cornelius. He was already there. Why didn't God use the angel? Why didn't God use Philip the evangelist? Philip could not not tell people about Jesus. Philip could not not invite people to the kingdom. Why didn't God use Philip who was right down the road from Cornelius? He was already there. The same reason God wants to use you. God invites each one of his disciples to be the inviter of people into his kingdom. And he invites you to be his inviter. It's not someone else's job. It's your job. But I also think God used Peter because Peter needed to be a part of the process. Because Peter needed to understand grace. Peter was a man of conviction. He was a man of principle. He was a, he was a religious, devout man. But he had to learn grace. And it's now at this point when Peter realizes that vision of the sheet was about God's grace. But grace isn't for dietary laws. Grace is for people. And he had to learn grace, God's grace for people for people that he deems outside of God's favor. See, the Jews believe that they've had the favor of God, but they believe they had the favor of God to the exclusion of others. Disciples understand they have the favor of God, and that favor is offered, offered to every man and woman who calls on the name of Jesus. And Peter had to learn that lesson. No one is too far outside of the kingdom not to be invited in and to come. Peter had to understand that. And the reason why you and I are gifted the sole privilege of all creation to be the inviters and the bridge of those in our huddle who don't know Jesus is so that we will understand the power and the magnitude and the beauty of God's grace when we get to be the bridge. I guarantee you, if you have ever had the privilege, if you stepped into that call of God to, to walk with someone across the line of faith, there's, you, you will never be the same. I remember when I was in high school, I started this evangelistic bent, going into prisons with Bill Glass Ministries, inviting people on my campus to accept Christ, calling my friends and asking them what I could pray for over them because there's nothing like this that you ever get experience. And I've never been able to shake that since my high school years. And we have the privilege of being that bridge. Why would we not? So Peter had to be a part of this. And our baptism last week, it was the best one. We, I, don't, I can't say that because every baptism is awesome. It's awesome. But this one was awesomer. Not because of what happened, but because of the stories that came out of those waters. 
There were so many people, adult people, who were giving testimony. I was, then Jesus, and I am. And so many of those people were stories from people that no one would ever have imagined they would ever be in those waters. And looking around at the people who were there celebrating with them were the people who spoke boldly and the bridges that helped get these unreachable people to be reached by Christ and get baptized. It was amazing. God could have done it any other way, but he chose to do it through those people who were faithful because they needed to be a part of God's process. And I guarantee you, when you're standing there on the water's edge and you see a person that you have been bold with, that God has called and he's called you to them and them to himself, and you see them get baptized, there's something in that process that you understand grace more profoundly. And so I got to ask, who is God calling? God works on both ends of that. God works at both ends of that equation. God is working right now to call people to himself who don't know him. They might be religious people, might be devout people. They don't know Jesus. At the same time, God is working in this end of that equation to draw you to that person so that he can put these two entities together so that we can have the privilege of walking with people into the kingdom. So my question is, who is God calling? If you've never accepted Jesus in your heart to be the leader of your life and the forgiver of your sin, he's calling you into that relationship. And if you have done that, he's calling you to be that bridge to your huddle. Why would either of you say no? Today is the day for your salvation. I want you to pray with me. If any of you have not yet dealt with Jesus, not with God, not the religion, but with the person of Christ, today is your day. Solidify that today. Between you and God, I would encourage you just to say, God, thank you that you love me. And you sent your son to die for my sin. Jesus, I believe you took care of my sin on the cross. I accept you as the leader and my savior. I submit to you. And I thank you for the forgiveness that you've given me. I accept it. And today I choose to be yours. If you've already prayed that prayer, he is calling you to be the bridge that he entrusts to nothing else in all of creation. To be bold in your faith, devout in your life, and to be purposeful with those in your huddle who don't know him, to introduce them to him. He's calling you to that. If you're a Christ follower and you're still drawing breath, that's the only reason you're still drawing breath. Don't waste the oxygen God's given you. And I would encourage you in prayer to say, Father, help me be bold. Holy Spirit, give me boldness 
I don't want to miss another opportunity. I will leave the results up to you. Just give me boldness to be a good witness to Jesus and your kingdom. I thank you for the opportunities you are already lining up. Help me step into them with confidence and boldness. In those moments, give me the words I need. I promise I won't worry about it ahead of time. I promise I'll trust you in the moment. Father, you are a good, good father. You showed us time and time and time again about your mercy and your grace. Thank you. You're doing something good, God. We just want to be a part of it. Continue your work. You have our yes on the front end. Direct it as you see fit. Jesus, in your name I pray, amen. Let's sing.